0: Okay, open, Bibles, Song of Songs, Chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, verse 6 through 11. Uh, so last night, um, Nate Hutchinson got married to Killian. Uh, it was a great, it was the shortest wedding I have ever been a part of. 15 minutes. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I, I, I said, Adam, you've never spoken that less in your life. He, had, he performed the service. It was fantastic. Um, but it was really interesting. It was, I think it was like two weeks. No, it was last week. Uh, Killian and Nate were meeting for our last premarital counseling session. And the wedding is on Saturday night, and obviously church is the following Sunday. And Killian asked me very innocently and, and almost like, um, you know, I, I want to be there. She said, you know, should Nate and I be at church on Sunday? And I looked at her and I said, Only if you want to violate the Song of Songs. And she was telling everybody that at the reception last night. My pastor told me not to go to church tomorrow. So there you have it. On tape. Thank you. Thank you, Killian. All right. So uh, let's think about this. What do you think the top ten most expensive weddings in the history of humankind are? Well, I have them for you. I have done this research for you, and I would like to share them with you, and we're going to move fairly quickly, but I think uh, it's very fascinating to listen to. Number 10, are you ready? This is number 10. Uh, it was a marriage that cost $2.2 million. It happened in 2005, and it ended in 2010, so it was a marriage that lasted for five years. Coming at number 10, at the beginning of the list of the most expensive weddings to ever happen on the planet ever, Christina Aguilera musical pop star, and Jordan Bratman, a musical label executive, all right? Number nine, coming at number nine, nine, nine. Elizabeth Hurley. You remember who she was, British model, actress? She married a guy named Arun Nair, an Indian businessman. Well, she upped the ante to 2.6 million, and they were married in 2007. Elton John did their music at the reception. How about that? You know, no playlists, not even a live band. You got Elton John. Uh, They were divorced four years later. It took the judge 92 seconds in that divorce proceeding to determine the marriage, quote, had broken down irretrievably. Uh, coming at number eight, Paul McCartney. Does anybody not know who he is? Okay, great, good. We're cool here. Whew. Sometimes I wonder about us. Paul McCartney and Heather Mills. Heather Mills was an entrepreneur. Their marriage was $3.6 million. They were married in 2002. This was like such a bummer. This is an expensive wedding. You know what kind of food they had on the menu? It was strictly vegetarian. How can you have that many people spend that much money? I would be, if I was a guest, I would be like so disappointed, absolutely disappointed. Uh, they divorced four years later. The divorce cost more than the wedding. McCartney paid $27 million to Mills in cash and then another $13 million in assets Coming in at number seven, Elizabeth Taylor, Hollywood legend, and Larry Fortinsky. That was a construction worker. Um, that wedding was $4 million. Uh, this was in 1991, remember? They were married at um, Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. Uh, they were divorced five years later. Coming at number six, Liza Minnelli and David Guest. I don't know who that is. I know who Liza Minnelli is, sort of, kind of. Wasn't she like. Is this a Wizard of Oz? Oh, okay. I, I did know. Judy Gar, Oh, that's Judy Garland. Oh, Brent. I need Brent beside me for all my stats, all my statistics, all trivia, big and small. All right, 4.2 million. They were married in 2002. They were separated one year later. They were divorced finally five years later. The divorce was branded in Hollywood, the dirtiest divorce in Hollywood. Number five, Chelsea Clinton and Mayor... Mazimski, an investment banker, and we, you know, former president's daughter, former secretary of state's daughter, and a once presidential hopeful. Uh, $5 million, married in 2010, and they're still married, the first on the list. Yes, yes. Coming in at number four, Colleen McLaughlin and Wayne Rooney, a soccer player from Manchester United. $8 million, so now we just, we're, we're, starting, to, we're starting to get up there, like $8 million, you know, Pittens, married in 2008. He, he chartered five private jets to fly 64 of his guests to Italy to have the wedding. They are still married and have two children and a growing family. Coming at number three, you all know who this is. I won't suspend you anymore. Suspend, suspense, same thing, just a different spelling. Prince William and Kate Middleton. Remember that? Now, the last one was $8 million. Are you ready for this? Thirty-four million dollars, four times as much as the one that it just got in front of. Um, they were married in 2001. It was called the wedding of the century. They are still married. They have two children, and they may have more. I don't know because this might be just a tad a year or two behind. Coming at number two, Venetia Mattel, daughter of one of the richest men in the world, married a nobody named Amit Bahati, sixty-six million. So we just doubled. Uh, Prince William and Kate Middleton's married in 2004 in Paris. International recording artist Kylie Minaj. Minaj. Okay, my wife told me Minaj. She goes, "Honey, it has to be an A, ah, not an O." Oh. So that's that's on her. It's <laughs> nice. All right. She, she was paid three hundred and thirty thousand dollars to play for thirty minutes at that wedding. I want to raise. I preach longer than 30 minutes. Just saying. They were divorced in 2013. So who do you think the number one of all time, the most expensive wedding to ever happen on planet Earth? Are you ready? Prince Charles and Diana. A hundred and ten million. That's double number two. They were married in 1981. 3,500 people were actually at the wedding. Another 750 million people watched it on TV. Her wedding gown had 10,000 pearls in it. It was a 25-foot train wedding gown, and she was transported to to the place where the ceremony was held in a sheer glass carriage. Sadly, they were divorced in 1996. Fifteen 15 years later. Their relationship suffered from, they uh, were very flirtatious with other people, not their spouses, not each other. And uh, rumors, and then depending on what you read or what magazine or whatever, uh, there was indiscretion, adultery as well. Uh, Then she died one year later in a car crash. But wait, there's one more. And in 2014, it broke into the top 10 and it took number one fourth spot. Do you know who that is? Are you ready? Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Oh, yes. If you don't know who they are, I cannot help you. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not going to explain who they are. $18 million, they're still married. And it appears that a gospel revolution is taking place in their lives. It's fascinating, isn't it? The kingdom of God is like a seed or yeast. Survey by The Knot, a wedding planner service in 2016, showed that the average cost of a wedding in the United States in 2016 was $35,329. That was the average. So I I am now telling my girls that, hey, um, eloping is not a bad idea. There's no shame in it. Um, I could do the service for free with you and you, the person you're going to marry, their parents, and your mom, and I'll be fine. Everyone on the planet thinks weddings are a big deal. Do you know that? Everyone on the planet thinks weddings are a big deal whether they last for one year or not. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter whether you are a Viking or a Spaniard. It doesn't matter whether you're 16 or 60. It doesn't matter whether you're a celebrity or a nobody. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what your tastes and personality is. Every single human being on the planet thinks weddings are a big deal. How can that be? Unless there's something like inherently to them like gravity that you just can't escape. Whether you believe it or not, there's something to a wedding. There's something to a a marriage that was put there. Whether you believe it or not. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: This is a reading from... Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion. And look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you shine on the page, give clarity to the mind, realness to the heart. And Lord, what we're asking is that you, Jesus, uh, we would experience you with your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So why are weddings such a big deal? (laughs) Why are they such a big deal? This whole passage is electric, isn't it? It's dramatic. It's vivid. It's experiential. It's emotional. The passage is saying to every reader, to you and me, feel it. (laughs) Feel it. This whole passage is otherworldly, it's dreamlike, it's fantasy-like, it's surreal, it's like Cinderella. It says to every reader, could it be true? Is it true? This whole passage is epic. I mean, it's exotic, it's ultra, it's super, it's beyond, it's above, it's transcendent. The passage is saying to every reader, to you and me, it's saying, be in awe. Be in awe of what you see here. This whole passage is timeless. It's ageless. It's ancient and modern, mingling together at the same time, simultaneously at the same spot. It's saying to you and me, do you see it? See it. Open your eyes. See it. Because what's here." Has always been. When she shows up in verse 6, it's God-like. Do you see that? Look at verse 6. She shows up and if you're an an Israelite. You're an Israelite and you see. uh, What would an Israelite think? What would they feel? What would they envision when a pillar of smoke, a pillar of fire starts coming towards them out of the wilderness? God is here. They would think a pillar of fire by day and by night, a pillar of fire leading us out of Egypt, a pillar of fire parting the Red Sea, a pillar of fire leading us through the wilderness, a pillar of fire and smoke leading us into the promised land. An Israelite would see verse six and they would go, God is showing up. This is probably why she, the woman, in the marriage or the wedding, only gets one verse because she's compared to God, and the man is compared to King Solomon, only King Solomon, and he gets five verses, right? He needed more because he was feeling insecure. Why are weddings such a big deal? I mean, why this mixture of the historical? Like, this is a legit kind of historical image and realm and referent point of one of Solomon, King Solomon's wedding, using all the images of it. So why do you have this historical mingling with this celestial realities? Why do we have this uh, intersection of earthly stuff with heavenly stuff? And the answer from the Song of Songs is because God has embedded into marriage Magic. That's why everyone all over the world, regardless of when you lived and where you lived, regardless of the time period, since the dawn of human beings have believed weddings are a big deal. Because inherent to marriage and inherent to a wedding is magic. It's been woven into the very fabric of marriage itself. It's been woven into the very fabric of a wedding itself that God has placed, God has infused, God has taken part of his glory and placed it in marriage, placed it in a wedding. It's magic. This is why everybody knows it, whether they believe it or not. This is why everybody knows it, whether their marriage only lasts for one year. This is why people will spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on weddings every year. So the question then is, okay, so that's great. There's magic in marriage. Um, Weddings are magical. Fantastic. They always seem to do something if you're ever there and you ever witness it. Something's going on. You don't know what exactly. So what exactly, what, what magic did God embed into marriage? What is that magic? Like, what did he infuse into marriage? It's there whether you believe it or not. What did he place there that everyone intuitively, intuitively knows it exists? Why do we have fairy tales? I mean, why do we have these stories? Because it's almost like this. I told this in the first service. When every ancient civilization, every ancient civilization has a flood story. And so you have two options to interpret that. Everyone made up a myth of a flood story. Or there really was a flood story. And every ancient civilization acknowledges it. That's why it's in all their textbooks. That's why it's in their history. They all have this cataclysmic flood story. Some folks look at it and say, well, you know, it's just a myth. And everybody seemed to believe the myth. It was a fairy tale. Or maybe there really was one. Well, when you have fairy tales everywhere, maybe it's because there really is one. Maybe there is a a magic that everybody longs for, hopes for, dreams for, wishes it's true, but struggles to believe that it's not. Okay, so before we look at the marriage that's embedded in the text, I have to do a couple, we have to do a little textual house cleaning. Okay, so I just put like cold water on all of us because we have to go, we have to get a little geeky, we have to get into the text a little bit because some of you, I need to tell you, I need to have some integrity, I need to tell you, not everybody's going to see the text the way I'm seeing it. So, in doing so, uh, I'm going to prove my point really quickly. Are you ready? Some see this whole wedding scene as only about Solomon. It's a metaphor about the man. So the wedding scene is all about the man all right? The ESV, my translation, where I have my wonderful Bible that's brand new, and you can still sort of smell the leather. It translates it this way, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? And, and it because it has the answer for you in verse 7, it interprets it for you. It's telling you what it is. Behold, it's the litter of Solomon. Okay, so that's, that's folks see that. I do not see it that way. There's another group of folks that see it this way. Others see verse 6 as the woman, and verses 7 through 11 as the man. So it would go like this. See the what in verse 6? It should better be translated who. So it would be who is, and then the that, it should be translated this. Who is this? Why would I translate the that to a this? It seems so petty. Well, here's why I would translate the that to a this. Because the that is feminine, not masculine or neuter. So it would change if it's feminine. It's something feminine is coming out of the wilderness. Well, I wonder who that could be. And then, when you look at perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, this shows up again only one other time in the Song of Songs. And it clearly refers to the woman. Which we're going to get to, chapter 4 is the wedding night, chapter 4 is the honeymoon. So be prepared, next week we start probably five, two to three chapters on the honeymoon. So you squeamish people might want to like schedule a vacation or something then. Look at lastly at verse 7, it could literally translate this. Now verse 7 in the ESV says, behold it is the litter of Solomon. Well that's their interpretive decision, right? But when you look at the literal translation, it goes like this. Behold, a litter, which is Solomon's, which would then say, verse 6 is the woman, and now we're talking about the man. This is a wedding, but the woman is compared to God, and the man is compared to King Solomon. Which one would you want to be? Are we good? Verse 6, the woman Verse 7 through 11, the man. Okay, back. Let's get back to the text. What magic did God embed into marriage? This whole passage is timeless. It's ageless. It's the mingling of of ancient and modern together simultaneously at the same time. The text is saying to you, see it? Do you see it? It's here. And it's always been here. (laughs) What's here that's always been here? What's here since the beginning of all things? What's here since the first original woman and man we're formed out of a dust and placed on the planet. What's here? What's so ancient? What's so modern? What is the magic? The answer is the magic of covenant. It's a theological word. It's a biblical word. It's like one of the most important words in the Bible, but it's one of those words that we just so recycle, so overuse that we just go like, What we do, you know, we all fall in love with the word like everything becomes a covenant covenant worship, covenant communities, covenant Bible studies, covenant men's group, covenant women's group, covenant, you know, uh, safari groups, whatever covenant, everything. And then we get over, we get sick of the word, we we drop it for 10 years, and then someone new comes in and goes, Hey, I found discovered this new great word called covenant. And the church does it again, and we do this every 10 years. But the reality of the covenant is doesn't make much sense. It doesn't have the impact. So let's, if you don't get gripped by covenant, let's get gripped by the meaning of it. Are you with me? Here's the meaning of it. After the original man and woman were brought together by God, here's how God describes what is happening. When God brings the man and the woman together in the first marriage, in the first wedding ceremony, this is why it's described. It's described, it's recorded as a covenant. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Mike Mason wrote this book called The Mystery of Marriage, and he says it this way. Marriage is the closest bond that is possible between two human beings. That, at least, was the original idea behind it. Socially, legally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every which way, there's just no other means of getting closer to another human being and never has been than marriage. There's not another way you can get closer to a human being than marriage. It's the magic of marriage. Cleaving means cleaving. It means becoming one flesh, the text says. It literally means to be glued to the other person. But you're glued to such an extent that you mingle. You're glued to such an extent that not only do your bodies intertwine, your souls intertwine, Every aspect of your life intertwines in such a way that you're glued that if if the other person is torn from you, it tears you with them. This is not one person swallowing. So a covenant is not one person swallowing up the other person. That would be called control. It's not one person being swallowed up by the other person willfully. That would be called codependency. And it's not two people living independent lives. Those will be called roommates. It's two people forming one new single unit. One new thing called a one flesh thing. Cleaving is binding and, and bonding and mingling and mixing of two lives, two souls, two bodies, two whole lives together, and that's called the magic of covenant. It is a uh, binding love forever. It's the stuff of fairy tales. It's the stuff everybody dreams about. It's the stuff that you hope is true, you wish is true, but you wonder, it's probably not. So what difference does the magic of this covenant this is what covenant means what difference does this magic make in your marriage right now what difference does it make for anyone considering marriage right now what difference does it make for the single who hopes to be married one day or for the single who knows they will never be married one day what practical difference does this make and here's the answer first it leaves it enables each spouse This magic of covenant enables each spouse to leave lesser commitments in their life and in their relationship. It enables them to do it. For instance, listen again to Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother. Why would you leave your father and your mother? That's so weird. Aren't fathers and mothers good things? Aren't friends good things? Aren't children good things? Aren't earthly relationships good things? But somehow there's something happening here. There's something incredibly magical here. There's something, something strange here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. If you are married, your marriage engages your whole soul. If you're married, your marriage is your most important relationship on the planet. It's the most fulfilling relationship on the planet for you. Your spouse is now your first priority in life. You are now best friends And lovers. Tim Keller in The Meaning of Marriage says it this way. If if your spouse is not the number one priority in your life, the number one priority relationship in your life, if that's not happening, what will happen is something else will become that. And this is what he says. If you see your spouse mainly as a sexual partner, so if your whole soul isn't engaged, if you aren't cleaved, if you aren't united, bonded forever, binding love with your spouse, Uh, but you only see them as a sexual partner or you only see them as a financial partner. That's what he's saying. If you see your spouse mainly as a sexual partner or financial partner, you will find that you will need pursuits outside of your marriage to really engage your whole soul. In that case, children, parents, career, political, social activism, hobbies, or a network of close friends, one or more of these things will capture your imagination, provide joy and meaning, and absorb emotional energy more than your marriage. And that will be deadly, he says. Your marriage will slowly die if your spouse senses that he or she is not your first priority in your life. If your spouse, if you're married, if your spouse is not your first priority in your life, whatever is your first priority in your life is now your pseudo-spouse. Uh, A couple years into planting Redeemer, my wife Nancy came up to me and said, hey, honey, can we talk? And I thought to myself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And then she said this. She said, honey, I feel like you're out there on the ministry field playing your heart out. And I went, inside I went, oh, okay, this is not going to be so bad. And then she said, and I'm on the sidelines, waving, trying to get your attention but you don't see me. Is your spouse on the sidelines waving, trying to get your attention but you just don't see them? Leave lesser Commitments. Covenant enables you to do that. Even ministry is a lesser commitment. Do you know what the number one since the beginning, since Jesus walked this earth and there has been a thing called ministry, that the number one problem, the number one devastation, the number one like ravaging Of marriages for Christians and for pastors and for um, Christian leaders and for missionaries and ravages families. You know what the number one thing that does it? The lesser commitment of ministry. Just ask Whitfield, just ask John Wesley. and I can, kind of, I can go through a whole list of everyone's spiritual hero. Strangely, though, not Jonathan Edwards and not Spurgeon. And their marriages were unbelievable. What difference does the magic of covenant make in your marriage? First, it allows you to leave lesser commitments. The second thing it does, it allows, it allows each spouse to love the other in the present And in the future, covenant allows you to say, hey, honey, I love you today. And honey, I will love you tomorrow. What's tomorrow? You don't know what tomorrow brings. For better, for worse, I will love you. For richer, I hope. For poorer, I don't. I will love you. In sickness and in health, I will love you. Song of Song scholars, Sharon Jane, says it this way. I married Steve because I love him. <laughs> now I love him because I married him. Covenant says, we're in this together No matter what. Wendy Plump wrote a painful article for the New York Times. She committed adultery. She had an affair on her husband. And she writes this article, incredibly painful article. She says during the affair, listen, the great sex is a given. Let's just get that out of the way. It's a given. When you have an affair, you already know you will have passionate sex. The urgency, the newness, and the illicit nature of the affair practically guarantees that you will. End quote. She speaks of how the thrill of the forbidden, the ego rush of being desired, the electricity of the sexual encounter, she says, all that stuff is mistaken for love. And then she turns the article in this really strange direction. She looks at her parents and she says, quote, They have this marriage of 50 years behind them, and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. And then she asks this unbelievable question. She says, if you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with artillery shells? Covenant says, we're in this together no matter what. I love you today. And I will love you tomorrow now those of us that are married if we if you're in that club called marriage you know how difficult this is everything I just said is incredibly difficult you know oh, it's so um, how do you experience this magic of covenant in your marriage it feels so elusive it how how do you get it real in your life and real in your marriage it it's just so hard to work at, right? Here's the good news, though. You don't make it happen. Well, you we just said we have this. We got to have this binding relationship of love. We we you know we got to entwine our bodies and our souls in all areas of our life, and that's so difficult. That's so impossible. That's so hard. It's such a difficult thing. And the answer is from jesus and from god and from the holy spirit from the bible um uh, you don't do that god does what look at verse six again who is this coming up from the wilderness like pillars of smoke the reason why her approach is mingled with god's approach is because there's an even deeper magic going on in this wedding god is there that's the point point. and god is establishing this covenant God is creating this binding relationship. God is actually sealing and union these two lives. God is doing it. That's why there's that famous line in every marriage, and I hope they stay in there and you should have it in your marriage. That famous line that goes like this, what God has joined together, let no one on the planet, no one on the earth, no one in the past and the present and the future tear it asunder. This is the point. I do so much, when I do marriage counseling and when I we have struggles in our marriage, uh, it, usually some of the root issues go something like this. Everyone's trying to become one. You're trying to establish unity and oneness and you're trying to establish being best friends and lovers and everyone falls short and one person's frustrated and the other person gives up and it's just this, this dynamic going on all the time, and the text is saying to you, God is saying to you, you don't establish it. God does. And when you got married, he did it. Now it's just a matter of being who you already are. You are one. Did you say, I do? Uh-huh. Okay. You're one. You're one flesh. You're in covenant. Done, kaput, over, kibitz, whatever. Dos it's finished. Now, get to work. Now, live it out. Now, because it's been done for you, fight for it. Pray for it. Believe it. Be who you already are. And some of you are thinking, but I'm lousy at it, Jeff. I mean, I'm hard to love, as the song says. One of my favorite songs. Hard to love. I'm hard to love. I don't do it well. One of the most famous covenants in all the Bible was made between God and a man named Abraham. Some of you might remember who he is. Uh, what happens is God and Abraham form this covenant. So you've got two people coming to form a binding love relationship forever and so as was custom in the ancient near east what they would do is they cut all these animals to pieces cut them in two slice them open and would spread half of them out over here the other half over here and when you would form a covenant you form a binding relationship you take two and make them one whatever it was the two parties would walk through these sliced bodies through this blood and this gore and they would each take their turn and walk through because what they are saying to the other person in forming this bonding relationship, if I don't keep it, may I be torn in two. If I fail you in this covenant, may I be torn asunder. And then the craziest thing happens, y'all. Abraham's ready, God's ready. And then all of a sudden God turns to Abraham and he knocks him out. Just, I don't know what it was. Was it a, he put him in a trance. He just bopped him on the head. I don't know what it was. But it's one of those things where Abraham is awake, but he's not awake. He can see what's happening, but he can't move. So maybe it was one of those paralysis things that got him. And he just froze. I don't know what God did, but he knocked him out. And then the, the most breathtaking thing in the world happened is that God then walks through the sliced pieces of, Alone. All alone. He shoulders all the responsibilities of the covenant himself. It is a one way covenant. Abraham never walked through it. But wait a minute. He did. Because when God walked through it, not only was God saying, Abraham, if I don't keep my binding love relationship to you, may I be torn asunder. But then he turns to Abraham and says, and Abraham, if you don't keep it, I'll be torn asunder. And so Abraham does not keep the covenant. And you and me, we've been covenant breakers our whole life against God. And if you're married, you know you're a covenant breaker in your marriage, too. And so God cuts himself in two on the cross. That's the magic of covenant, that's the magic of your marriage. That's the magic of life.